Join me in praying. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. In so many ways, all the time, you prove over and over again how faithful you are. Even when we are afraid, Lord, when we're overwhelmed, when we're intimidated, you are there. And you are in control, and you're faithful, and you're good, and you're righteous. And your word does not return void, Lord. You send it forth, and it accomplishes the purpose for which you send it forth. Even when it's hard to believe, and hard to understand, and difficult to see. Just like the people that this letter was sent to. They were in such hard times, such tumultuous events. They were so scared. But you're communicating your faithfulness to them in this text. Lord, would you do that to us today? For our lives are similar. We've got circumstances that are hard and situations that are weird and scary and finances that aren't making sense and all these other things. And we want desperately to cling to you. So help us, Lord. We know it's the right thing. We know you're faithful. We believe, but Lord, help our unbelief. Anywhere where we are lacking in belief, Lord, have mercy on us. Give us faith. And teach us to wait on you and to trust you as we see that you truly do uphold and sustain all things in the universe and in our lives. Teach us about this now in your word and increase our faith to live for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to cover a little portion of verse 3 today that has to do with Jesus as the upholder or sustainer of all things. Let's just start reading of verse 1 until we get to our section for today. Once again, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. We covered that last week. And today... It says, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And wanting to encourage these Christians who are weak and weary and afraid, the author of Hebrews tells him that Jesus Christ upholds all things. All things. It could be translated the universe. Ta panta in the Greek. It just means everything. He upholds everything, the big things and the little things, the universe and your life. Jesus upholds, sustains, carries all things by the word of his power. Now, technically speaking, this passage and this concept communicated in this passage has to do with the interaction between God and his creation. The interaction between God and his creation. And within our world today, within society, there are several different and prevalent ideas about the existence of things, about God and how he interacts or doesn't interact with things. The first idea that's prevalent in society is materialism. Materialism. Materialism is the idea that the material universe is all there is. Materialism is the idea that everything that exists is simply the material universe. There's no spiritual reality. There's nothing in the unseen realm. There's nothing behind it. Everything that is is simply the material realm that is seeable and tangible and touchable. Now, this is probably the most common philosophy of non-Christians today, materialism. 
and it denies the existence of God altogether. There is no God. Only what we can see is what is real. This can be represented in a diagram, something like this. Here we have in the circle all of the universe, everything represented. And you see that it simply says the universe. There's nothing else. There's just the universe. That's all there is, is the material universe is the idea of materialism represented thusly. Now we as Christians, of course, we reject the view that the material universe is all that there is, right? We reject that view. We're not down with Madonna. We're not going to be material girls in the material world. We believe that there's something else. We reject that as Christians. But many Christians fall into being practical materialists. Theologically speaking, you couldn't define them as a materialist, but they fall into being a practical materialist when they focus the entire effort of their lives on the pursuit of more money and possessions. Everything for them comes down to the pursuit of the dollar and what they have and what they don't have and what they can get and what they can accumulate. And their life and the way that they live wouldn't be much different if there wasn't any God at all. They profess to be Christians. I'm a Christian. They probably go to the church, praise the Lord. You know what I mean? They have a Bible and they sing the songs. But the way that they live represents their underlying ideology or philosophy. They are practical materialists. As Christians, we, we've got to be aware of the subtle temptation. Jesus said, don't lay up treasure on earth. It doesn't mean that we can't have things. But he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, what Jesus is wanting is your heart. Amen? He died on the cross that we might have a meaningful love relationship with him. And it's just so easy for our heart to get all wrapped around material things. It's really easy because that's what's tangible. And it brings instant gratification and immediate satisfaction. So it's easy to get caught up in those things and pursue those things. And we see Christians do it all the time. We start very well in the Christian life. And then just little bit by little bit, week by week, month by month, year by year, there comes a shift in their ideology away from God being the center of their life to now strictly a material pursuit. And it's sneaky how it happens. You don't just wake up one morning and say, you know what? I'm done with God and the whole spiritual realm and pursuing him and spiritual fulfillment and the things of God and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. I'm done with that. I want to get me some of these things. It doesn't really happen overnight like that, but slowly, sneaky, sneaky, bit by bit, piece by piece, there comes a shift in our heart. And it happens when you don't nurture the spiritual disciplines. If you don't nurture your spiritual life, prayer and worship and reading the Bible and talking about Jesus and sharing Jesus, you don't nurture your spiritual life, it will begin to decay. And the enemy will see to it that your material life is nurtured. Don't you worry about that. He'll appeal to that. So we need to be very aware of that as Christians, that we don't fall into practical materialism. And take stock of your life today. As you know, if you know that you're more consumed with material things today than you were several months ago, you've backslid a little bit perhaps. God is so graceful. He loves the child that's returning back to him. He's got no problem with that. He's got open arms for you today. If you just come and say, wow, Lord, I'm sorry I got so distracted on the material stuff. 
I want you to be first. It doesn't mean we don't have material things. It doesn't mean we don't have paychecks. We do. But it just means Jesus is on the throne. And he's the center. And he's the chief pursuit. Amen? So we don't want to be practical materialists because we believe that there is a God and Scripture teaches that there is a God. Now, there's another popular view of God in the material universe that's a little bit closer, and that is pantheism. Pantheism. Pantheism is a belief that everything, the whole universe, is God or a part of God. Pantheism. The belief that everything is God. Pan being the Greek word for all or every. And this ideology, this philosophy is represented by Buddhism and other Eastern religions. And it can be pictured as this. The circle representing everything and the word God in the middle of it, as you see before you. They believe, pantheists, that God is everything. God is the universe. I'm God. You're God. The chairs are God. The trees are God. Everything is God. It's just all God. Now, there's a problem with that. You see, pantheism denies several essential aspects of God's character as revealed in Scripture. If the whole universe is God, then God no longer has a distinct personality. But in the Scriptures, we find a God who has a personality, who's distinct, right? But if everything is just God, then there's no distinction. Everything's just sort of God. And if everything is just God, then God is no longer unchanging because the universe changes. That would mean that God also changes. But the Bible communicates that God is unchanging, and you ought to be glad about that. That he was faithful yesterday, he'll be faithful today and tomorrow. And then pantheism would intimate that God is no longer holy because then the evil in the universe is also a part of God. God is everything, and the evil in the universe is part of God. But the Bible teaches that there is a holy God. The biblical account shows a God who's distinct, with a distinct personality, whose attributes are eternal and unchanging, and who is holy. So we reject pantheism altogether. There's another popular view that gets even closer, and this is called dualism. Dualism. Am I boring you guys? Are you okay? Dualism. Dualism is the idea that both God and the material universe have eternally existed side by side. God and the material universe have always existed together. One did not cause the other, but God and material things have always just been. And it can be represented as thus. There you have a circle with the word God in the middle, and you have another circle with the universe in the middle. So you have these two things existing simultaneously and eternally, God and matter. The idea is that there are two ultimate forces in the universe. God is one and matter is the other. And it indicates, dualism does, that there is an eternal conflict going on between good and the evil aspects of the material realm. Between God and the evil of the material realm. And in this framework of dualism, it's unknown whether God will ever triumph over the material universe or not. The two have always existed side by side. Who knows who might win? In this ideology, there's no clear answer as to whether or not good 
And a good God will ever triumph over the material universe. But you see, Scripture teaches the lordship of God over creation and that he is the cause of creation, right? He is the cause of creation. And he himself is the uncaused cause. What was before God? Just God, man. He always was. I don't get it. You're not supposed to get it. You're finite. You have a little brain. It's a big God. He always was, but material universe was not always. God spoke it into existence. And that material universe exists to glorify God. But what dualism does is deny that God created all things as good, which Genesis 1.31 says, God looked and behold, it was good. And it leads people to believe that matter is somehow evil in and of itself which is a false view. Scripture doesn't teach that matter in and of itself is evil. Here's a modern example of this philosophy of dualism playing itself out in popular culture. The Star Wars series of movies. Fun, entertaining, good. I really love Yoda. It's all great. <laughs> Chewbacca, too. I, I sometimes fancy myself as a sort of Chewbacca. <laughs> but in Star Wars, you have a, sort of a spiritual component happening. And, and what it is, it's the idea of the existence of a universal force, the force, right? The force be with you. And, and the force in Star Wars has both a good side and an evil side, right? You got Yoda on the good side and Darth Vader on the evil side. So it, it's a force, but there's good and there's bad. And they seem to be equal in strength and power. And so there is this struggle playing out. And who knows who might win? It's dualism. Good and evil, side by side, equal in power and strength, battling it out. And what's absent from that concept is the concept of one holy and transcendent God who rules over all and who will triumph over all. In dualism, we don't know that good will prevail. We don't know that God will prevail. The two sides seem to be about equal in strength. And here's what happens, again, in popular culture. Many non-Christians adopt a dualistic worldview because somehow, some way, they come to see that there is a spiritual component to the world. They see that there's a spiritual reality. They may have been materialists before, but now they see, no, there, there's something spiritual that's going on for sure. Because I see good and evil, and I see spiritual things happening. And so they just assume then that there's good and evil, and that they're equal. And they just sort of by default take on a worldview which is dualist in nature. And these are a lot of people that we're trying to share Jesus Christ with. Much of the New Age religion is dualistic. Now, Here's who's most delighted with dualism. Satan. Satan is very delighted with a dualistic review. To have people think that there's an evil force in the universe that is perhaps equal in power to God, well, it sits very well with Satan. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Many Christians who are untrained in the Scriptures think that. Oh, the devil and God and they're battling out, and I hope God wins. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure I think God is going to win, but oh, man, back and forth. And, but it's not like that. God is sovereign. God is the Lord. God is victorious. He opened up a can of whoop on the devil at the cross. 
He is a defeated foe. He, the end is not yet. He will be thrown into the lake of fire and ultimately done away with. But we're in the middle of the storybook. We're in the latter half, praise the Lord. But we're still in the midst of the book. If you need to get a sneak peek at the end, just read the end of the book, Revelation. And you'll see that Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and the victory is made ultimate and made manifest. It's not that Satan and God are equal powers, no. Jesus said, all authority, all right, all might, all power has been given unto me. It's good to know that the one whom you serve is greater than he who is in the world, the devil. Amen? Amen. It's good to know. Now, there's one more viewpoint that is popular. It's closer still to the biblical perspective, but it's still pretty far off. And that is deism. Deism is a view that God created the universe and is greater than the universe. Those things are true but is not now directly involved in the universe. He created the universe. He's greater than the universe, but he's not directly involved in the universe. And it looks like this if you want to represent it with a diagram. There we have God encapsulated, and there we have creation, and the two are separated, and there's nothing connecting them. And that's the deist view. God is separate from, keeps himself aloof from creation. Now, some deists agree that there is a God who has moral standards. They believe in a God. They believe in a God with moral standards. And some even believe that God will have a judgment day where he will hold humanity accountable to those moral standards. But the similarities stop there. They deny his present involvement in the world. In their mindset, God is viewed as a divine clockmaker who wound up the clock at creation and just sort of lets it spin and lets it run on its own. And you see, what this view does is it denies almost the entire history of the Bible. Because the Bible is the story of God's active involvement in the world. It's a story of God's intimate and infinite concern with humanity, of God interacting with humanity. That's what we see in the Bible, don't we? And that's what we want to believe about God. We don't, we, we don't want a God who's aloof and far off. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches a God who is infinitely and intimately concerned with our comings and goings. Now, we reject deism as Christians. The Bible doesn't teach that. But... Many Christians are practical deists. They would claim to be theists, believing in a God who is involved, but they are practical deists. The way that they live represents a deistic worldview. They live almost lives that are almost totally void of prayer, worship, the fear of God, moment by moment trust in God, appealing to God to seek his purposes, appealing to God to meet their needs. And there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians but live a deistic sort of life. Now, your theology is revealed in the way that you live. It's one thing to profess orthodoxy. It's one thing to say you have a certain theology. But what you do is what you believe. What you say is the game you're playing. But what you do is what you believe. 
And so how you react when life situations come along reveals whether you're a deist, believing in a God who is removed and not concerned and not involved, or a theist, believing in a God who is concerned and involved and connected. When things fall apart, what do you do? How do you act? How do you respond? Where do you go? That will reveal your theology. When you get a flat tire on the freeway, that will reveal your theology to a certain degree. Do we pray first and appeal to the Lord first, or do we immediately triple A? I'll confess it in my life, I'm, I'm back and forth. There's certain days where I get a flat tire, I'm like, oh, triple A, praise the Lord. My mom bought me triple A, I'm going to use it. Thank you, mom, I love you so much. I'm calling triple A, come get me, wait, hurry up. There's other days where my first inclination is to pray. Hey, God, I'm your man, and this is your day. I just got a flat tire. What's going on? Lord, how should I approach it? What, 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 what's your purpose here? Lord, would you help me? You know what I mean? I'm back and forth, but I, but I, I want to be more of a theist than a deist. I really want to appeal to God in every situation of my life because he wants to be involved in my life, I want to respond to that desire. And as Christians, we want to avoid becoming practical deists. It's very easy to do that, to start to eliminate God bit by bit, part by part, out of the reality of your life. Now, the teaching of Scripture about the relationship of God in creation is unique among all the religions of the world and all the philosophies of the world. No other religions, no other philosophies have what the Bible teaches concerning God and creation. The Bible teaches that God is distinct from his creation. That is, he's not part of it. So it's not pantheism. It teaches that he made it. So it's not materialism. He spoke material things into existence. It teaches that he rules over it. So it's not dualism, it's not two equal powers, and it teaches that he is very much involved in it. So it's not deism. What the Bible teaches about God is that he is both transcendent and imminent. He is both transcendent and imminent. Now let's define those. Transcendent means that God is far above creation in the sense that he's greater than creation, and he's independent of it. He doesn't need creation. He's far above it. He's not melded into creation. He's separate and distinct. He's transcendent. But at the same time, he is imminent, which means operating within. God is permanently pervading and sustaining the universe. Creation is distinct from God, but it is always dependent on God. And you need both of those ideas to have a proper theology. God is transcendent and yet imminent. He's far above and separate from, he's not part of, and yet he's imminent, he's involved in and works within. And that could be represented like this in a diagram. There you have God inside the circle, and there you have creation, and you have them connected. And this is what is in mind in our text. 
In verse 2 of Hebrews 1, we learn that all things were created through Christ Jesus. And then now here in verse 3, it says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Let's look at that word uphold for a minute. In the Greek, it's the word pharaoh. Not like the pharaoh who was, you know, the head of Egypt. Not at all the same thing. It just sounds the same. But it's the Greek word pharaoh. Upholding or sustaining as it's translated in the NIV. And that's also a good translation. The basic idea of pharaoh or to uphold is to bear or to carry. Very simple. It just means to bear or to carry. It also means to cause to continue in a state or condition. So to sustain. And that's really the thrust of it here in the context of Hebrews. It's not merely to uphold creation like Atlas or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. God does hold all things together. Colossians 1 says the same thing. Jesus holds all things together. He does carry the universe, so to speak. But there's a momentum and there's a goal. He causes it to continue in a state or a condition. Carrying something toward the goal is the idea here. The word denotes both sustaining and moving. And in the Greek language, it's in the present tense. And what the present tense means is that it's happening all the way into time forward without any end in view. Which means that he has always been upholding creation, and he is right now upholding creation. That's what the Bible teaches about the person of Jesus Christ. He is the creator of all things. All things were created by him, John 1. All things were created through him, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. All things exist for him, Colossians 1. And all things are held together by him, Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1. He is the one that holds all things together. Here's a quote from Charles Eerdman. He says, speaking of Jesus, <clears throat> He who was before all things, who created all things, who is the goal or heir of all things, is further declared to be the sustainer of all things. He not merely supports, as one might support a weight, but he carries forward. He guides, he governs, he brings to its right conclusion the whole course of nature and history. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that as we're in history. And we're playing a role in history. But, but if, if you lose track of that, just read the end of the book, brother. Sister, just read the end of the book. It'll show you that he brings it all to its right conclusion. Another quote here from Norman Geiser, same idea. Jesus is both the originator, the creator, and the operator of creation. He is both its source and its sustainer. He is not only creator, but also conserver of all that is. Christ is at once producer and provider of all living things. So the Bible teaches that creation, the material realm, and the created spiritual realm. He created all things seen and unseen. The Bible teaches that creation is necessarily dependent upon God. It depends on God for its genesis, and it depends upon God for its continuance. In theological philosophy, it's called 
the contingency of creation. Creation is contingent upon something else, namely God and his continual sustaining of it. Job 12.10 says that the life of every living thing is in his hand and the breath of all mankind. Your breath right now is in the hand of God. He sustains your life. Daniel 5.23 says that man's life breath is in his hand. Acts 17, 25, and 28 says that God gives to men life and breath and everything, and that in him we live and move and have our being. And then Psalm 104, verse 14 says this, that God causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth. You see, he didn't just wind it up like a clock, like a watchmaker, and let it go. But it's God at this moment who causes the earth to spring forth vegetation, who causes the grass to grow, the fields to yield their produce. It is his continued intervention in and involvement with and sustenance of creation that causes those things to continue. Now, science studies such things as a hydrological cycle and nutrients in the soil and the growth of things. And humanity marvels at the delicate balance of the conditions for life on earth. And humanity and science observes the laws that govern such things, such as gravity, so on and so forth. But often humanity and science fail to realize that it is Christ who holds all things together and keeps all things in balance. Gravity centrifugal force, centripetal force, etc. All of these are products of God's creative prowess. They are all expressions of his mind, as J.B. Lightfoot said. All of these laws that we can observe, that we see functioning, that we think govern the material realm, are actually expressions of God's mind. He created those things. He's the one who holds them together and keeps them functioning. You count on gravity. Some of you getting old, you curse gravity. <laughs> He's real old. Love you, Bruce. But that's a creation of God. And it was not only created by God, but He's the one who continually sustains it. He's the reason that we can rely on it. Now, consider the delicate balance of our solar system. The sun's surface is 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it were any closer, we would burn up. If it were any further, we would freeze. If the moon did not remain a specific distance from the earth, then the ocean would completely inundate land twice a day. And yet the sun and the moon and the earth remain in perfect position while the earth travels around the sun at eight times the speed of a bullet fired from a gun. And they are in perfect balance. And Jesus Christ, Scripture declares is the one who maintains that balance. He thought it. He spoke it. 
it became, and he maintains it. Christ sustains the universe. Any law that science can observe governing such things are actually governmental slaves of Christ. Any law that we observe governing things are governmental slaves of Christ who spoke them into existence and causes them to continue. Wow. <laughs> I guess he let that light go. He just said, I'm done with that light. That was cool. Back to the Bible study. Observe the atom. Write the atom. All things are made up of atoms. Its nucleus contains positively charged and neutral particles which should, by all understanding, fly apart. By all understanding, everything that we know about those elements, it should fly apart. Yet somehow, the atom, everything is made up of atoms, somehow, the atom holds together. Scientists, not understanding how it is held together, call this the holding of the atom together. Get this, they call it the strong force. I know his real name. It's Jesus. Now, how does Christ uphold or sustain all things? He upholds and sustains all things in the same way that he created all things. Hebrews 11.6 says, By faith we believe that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. We believe that God spoke everything into existence, right? He spoke everything to, and he created all things out of nothing. That's a key component of your creation uh, theology. He created everything out of nothing. Now he sustains all things the same way. It says that all things are upheld by the word of his power. By the word of his power, a Hebraic expression which simply means his mighty word or his enabling word. His enabling word. And the word here from the Greek that's translated is rhema. You have another word called logos. That's the one used in John 1, in the beginning was a word, and was in the beginning was a word, halagos. But this is rhema, and it's speaking of spoken word. An utterance, something that actually has sound, the spoken word of God, a word uttered by a living voice. Genesis 3.1, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So all things came into existence literally, actually, by the utterance of God. F.F. Bruce says, the creative utterance which called the universe into being requires as its complement that sustaining utterance which maintains the universe in its being. So somehow, by the utterance of Christ Jesus, all these things, the solar system, the atom, everything, my life, your life, are held together by the word of his power. Now, when God was made manifest in the flesh we saw some unique glimpses of the word of his power, didn't we? When he was made manifest in the flesh, we got some glimpses of this. For example, 
The winds and the waves were subservient to his word. He said, be still, and they were still. Sickness and disease fled before his command. He said, be healed, and people were healed. Demons were subject to his authoritative bidding. He said, be gone, and they were gone. Even the dead came forth in response to his mighty command. He said, Lazarus, come forth, and he came forth. And through all the ages, to this day, the whole of creation is directed by the will and the word of its heir and its maker and its upholder, Jesus Christ. So creation is necessarily dependent upon God. It is contingent upon God. But here's where we wind it up. All of creation, including you and I, are necessarily dependent upon God. But what you and I have to endeavor to do as Christians is become practically dependent upon God. All of creation is necessarily dependent but we need to endeavor to become practically in the everyday living, in the minutia of life, dependent upon God. You see, all of these things that we just spoke about during his incarnation happened at the command of the Lord, and so everything went just as the Lord willed it. Everything responded to his word. He said to the wind and the waves, be still, and they were still. He said to sickness, be gone, and it was gone. He said to demons, be gone, and they were gone. He said to the dead, rise, and they rose. Everything responded to his command, and so everything was right. The only exception is you and me. You see, we are the ones who have been given free will. And with it, we decide to obey or not obey the Word of God. And when we don't obey the Word of God, we find ourselves falling apart. The earth maintains its orbit because it obeys the utterance of God. We find our worlds falling apart when we refuse to obey the Word of God. We remove ourselves from his active sustaining of our lives. He wants to sustain you. He is by definition the sustainer. But he has given us this wretched free will. Because he wanted a meaningful love relationship, he did not make you like the wind and the waves. He did not make you like the demons. He did not make you as a sickness, nor did he make you as a dead man. But because he wanted a meaningful love relationship, he gives us the power to choose. And he honors the choices that we make. He did not slap with a lightning bolt the apple from the hand of Eve, though we wish to some degree he had. He placed in the garden the tree and he said, do not eat of it. But when she chose to eat of it, he let her eat of it. And she reaped the consequences. The world fell apart. 
and in the same way today, our lives, and the way that we obey the Lord. You see, Jesus wants to hold your life together. That, that's the message that's coming to the Hebrews. They're about to get murdered by Nero, possibly. And the author's telling them, Jesus wants to hold your life together for you guys, but you've got to go his way. That's why he exhorts them throughout this whole book, don't fall away from the faith. Don't leave Jesus. He will be your sustenance. He will sustain you. Don't depart from him. And to go your own way, and then to see things go wrong, and to blame God, well, that's just not right. God didn't do that. You did that. And when we do follow him, and things are difficult, we can have the assurance that he'll get us through. In fact, Romans 5 says we rejoice in tribulation, knowing that it brings about perseverance, and perseverance brings proven character, and proven character brings hope, because hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so in good times or in bad times, if you are with Jesus, you are okay. He will sustain. He will uphold. He is imminent, involved. At least he wants to be. He's not aloof. He's not removed. But, but what happens is so many Christians hold themselves aloof. They remove themselves from the intimacy of God. And Jesus said, John 15, if you abide in me, if you stay connected to me, you're going to bear much fruit. Your life will be fruitful. But if you disconnect yourself from me, it's going to be difficult. In fact, he says it's not good for anything anymore. It's gathered up and it's burned in the end. So the key is to remain connected to the one who sustains us. Now, the world was getting weird for these Hebrew Christians. It's getting extremely difficult. Already having been persecuted by the Jews, now they're being hunted by the Romans. Our world is getting weird. I don't know if you've noticed. But our world is getting weird. But Scripture teaches that all people and all the nations are under God's dominion. Daniel 4.35 says, But God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? You see, even while allowing free will, God is so great and so powerful, so creative, so wonderful, that he will still work all things to his glory. It would be a finite, weak being who said, well, it has to happen like this, or I can't do anything with it. That's us. God is so big and so powerful that he's able to, as an act of his sovereignty, extend to us free will and still ultimately work his will whether we will go with him or not. So though things get scary sometimes, we can trust that he is in control. He is achieving his predetermined purpose for mankind as he guides the ages toward the elimination of his enemies and the establishment of the eternal state of righteousness. And he will bring all things and persons to their proper end. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25. Then comes the end, 
When Jesus delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And so, as the book of Colossians tells us, Jesus is the goal, he's the summation, he's the end of all things. And all creation has that goal to accomplish, a specific purpose and program of God, and the Son is the one who will make sure that creation reaches that goal. He's going to do it. The only question is, are you with him? Jesus said, you are for me or you are against me. You are either gathering in the kingdom of God or you are scattering. No more middle ground, Christian. No more practical materialism. No more practical deism. Choose this day whom you will serve. The world is getting weird, but Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You say, what about evil rulers? And what about this and that? And what about the other? Quote here from Gromacki, Robert Gromacki, a great commentator. He says, God is the sovereign governor of the affairs of the nations. He can work through and in the actions of both good and evil men to accomplish the ultimate purpose of his glorification. In so doing, God will hold men accountable for their evil deeds and will reward the righteous for their goodness. Isn't it good to know that God is going to hold people accountable? It's difficult now, and we see all sorts of atrocities, but the story is not over yet. We are in the midst of it. Thank God we're near the end of the book. But the end is not yet. He will hold wicked doers accountable, and the righteous he will reward. But what about your everyday life? Your amens today only means something according to the way that you live tomorrow. In Psalm 139, the psalmist rejoices and says, How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I awake, I am still with thee. You have the opportunity to interact with a God who is infinitely, intimately, wonderfully, graciously concerned with every fiber of your being and your existence. Don't miss him. Amen? Amen? Lord, we thank you for your wonderful word. For these potent and powerful truths. And now we, we come together with one voice, Lord. In one mind and in one accord, we come together. And we ask that you would help us now to live according to your word. The winds and the waves and the orbit of the earth and all these other things, they obey you. We alone are the ones who disobey. Lord, help us. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, give us a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit that we might have power to obey. We need power from on high to be your witnesses. Help us, Lord. You've chosen us. You call us your own. You call us your bride, but we're weak and we're weird. And we need your help. Have mercy on us. Thank you that you're a merciful God. And Lord, when the wind and the waves rear their ugly head and circumstances seem overwhelming and this world is so uncertain, we cling to you. 
You are beautiful and great and awesome in every way. And if there's anywhere where we're lacking faith in, every, in any part of our lives, help us, Lord. Help us to believe you. Help us to cling to the truth of Romans 8:28. that, God, you work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. You're the one that exchanges beauty for ashes. When we feel like we're going to faint, you give us a mantle of praise instead. Help us to experience, to actualize, to walk in these things, Lord. Help us now. If you guys need a little extra help, the prayer team is right up here to your left. You're welcome to come and take communion. And remember this great and mighty, awesome Jesus who humbled himself to the point of dying on a cross for us, but who rose again in victory to live for us.